You can have a seat. Well, once again, good morning, church. Um, it is a joy to worship together with you. And it's my great privilege to introduce our guest preacher this morning. Um, when I started seminary many years ago now, that's weird, uh, but back in 2004 is when I started seminary, uh, I only knew Doug Grotheis by reputation, and that was uh, an intimidating one at that. Um, I, I came in expecting um, just a, a mean, fierce uh, intellectual. And, uh, and that's I, what you got. And <laughs> many people perhaps leave with the same impression, um, but uh, that was not my experience. Um, I got to take my first class with Dr. Grotheis in a summer session, uh, which is a smaller group and more personal and maybe, I don't know, maybe more relaxed. I don't know if that's true, Doug, you could tell. Um, but that course, uh, I look back at that course and the books that we read uh, the discussions that we had, the papers that we had to write as, as genuinely a life-changing course. That started a, uh, a, a friendship with Doug um, because what I discovered was not just a, uh, an intellectual or an academic, but somebody who genuinely loved the Lord and was genuinely committed to the church. And unfortunately in academia, those things don't always correlate. Um, so I was super grateful for that. Uh, our church at the time was going through uh, all sorts of uh, excitement in terms of uh, the ways the Spirit of God was moving and, and uh, miraculous things were happening, and Doug was a great person for me to process those things with, and we got to pray together on several occasions. Um, the last thing I want to say about that is uh, perhaps the most fruitful moment in seminary uh, was a result of that class. Uh, we had to do an assignment uh, where we did um, a worldview interview with someone that we knew who was not yet a believer. And so I, uh, I uh, called up my friend Tom, and we met together. And the, this worldview interview goes through four questions, you know, about origins, uh, what's wrong with the world, what, what needs to happen for it to be fixed, and what do you think of Jesus? Those were the four questions for us. I don't know if that's... Good job. Thank you. Still trying to get an A. Um, so, uh, and we had learned this process of just listening and, you know, asking follow-up questions and holding, well, you said this, and now you're saying that, and those things are contradictory. And, and so um, Tom and I had this wonderful conversation. I don't remember what grade I got, and I got an A on the paper. That's, I do remember. Um, but uh, it was a wonderful conversation, and, and he left sort of scratching his head. And about a week later, at 10 o'clock at night, I get a call. And it was Tom, and he's, all he said was, I'm ready. And I knew what that meant, and I drove to his apartment uh, you know, late that night, and, and we spent an hour or so talking and praying together as he surrendered his life to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, that conversation started because you gave us an assignment, Doug, so thank you for that assignment. And Tom, thanks you. <laughs> as well. So uh, I'm very grateful that Doug is here. This is not your first time preaching here. Uh, when our first was uh, born, Jada, she came five weeks early, and we, we didn't expect that. And uh, so the elders had to rally in a couple days to, to fill the pulpit. And 
uh, you had run into one of them just days before and said, hey, if I can ever help out at, at Littleton Christian, I'd be happy to. Uh, you say that to me every time you see me. And they said, okay, we know who to call. So with maybe two or three days notice, uh, Doug came and preached. And, and Jada is now 10 and a half. So uh, it's long overdue to have you back. So um, as we are uh, preparing our hearts to hear the word and the preaching of the word, uh, let's hear Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 together. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be the measure you receive. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let, re let me remove the speck from your eye? Well, there is a beam in your own. You hypocrite. First, remove the beam from your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Amen. Well, it's very good to be back. And when I'm introduced by someone who's been my student, I never quite know what is going to be said, but I'll give you an A on that introduction. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you ever told me that uh, your friend became a Christian through that assignment. You might have, and I forgot, but what a beautiful story. That's happened a number of times over the years when I've given that assignment to my class. Well, Mike and I were meeting a few weeks ago, and the church paid for the lunch, so you may want to speak to him about that. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you paid for it. No, we were talking about the church and uh, the preaching that he's been doing, and he said, I've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount and really trying to take seriously everything that Jesus commands in the whole New Testament. And he said, if you have something related to command of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that might be something good to preach on. So I reflected on that a little bit, prayed about it, and I thought of Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And I had never preached on this. I had talked about it many times. But this is the passage that we have to work with today, and it's really quite profound and also quite misunderstood by many people. So the question I have to start with before we get into this verse by verse is how do we represent God and the gospel today in the world? How are we judged by the watching world? Are we considered to be judicious or censorious? A word I'll come back to. Are we measured in our judgments or are we reactive? Are we wise or are we foolish? And 
We live in a day where it's so easy to state your opinions, your judgments publicly, not only in conversations, but through social media, through so many different means. And so as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, how do we judge wisely, properly, in a spirit-filled and biblical way? Because judgments really are unavoidable, the issue is whether we can make skilled and wise judgments. And in fact, the watching world judges us by what we do, of course, but also by how we judge, how we evaluate people and situations and moral issues. This passage comes after chapters 5 and 6, which are part of the Sermon on the Mount, and there is so much there to talk about, but I want to review it just a little bit by talking about the Beatitudes, because as we evaluate, we want to be evaluators who are blessed in our evaluation. So in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that we are blessed and we have various rewards when we are poor in spirit, meaning we're not arrogant, even when we mourn over things worth mourning over in this broken world. When we are meek, when we trust for God's power and goodness to come in the world and don't take it into our own hands. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness as opposed to being complacent or lazy. When we are merciful as opposed to being judgmental. When we are pure in heart as opposed to divided and confused. When we are peacemakers as opposed to warmongers. When we are persecuted because of righteousness, there is a blessing in that if we are persecuted because of our testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. So in light of that, Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Matthew 5, 13 through 15. To be the right kind of salt and the right kind of light, we need to be people of the Beatitudes through the inspiration and wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit within us. This is not something that we can simply muster on our own. We have to bow our knee to the Lord, confess our sins as we've done this morning. You know, I almost thought I was in an Anglican service. I felt very much at home here. And ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. And Jesus said, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, God will answer you. That's a very good and wise prayer to ask. So the question I want to ask is, how can we judge Jesus' way? So the title I have is Judging Jesus' Way, Judging in the Way of Jesus, in light of these eight blessings, these eight beatitudes. So we want our judgments to be spirit-led. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and the spirit who gives us the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And we don't want to judge 
in the way of the flesh, being enraged, being too vociferous, too emotional. And it is so easy to do that on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, just one-on-one with people, on the phone, whatever it is. So we need the Spirit to teach us to judge biblically and in accordance with the Beatitudes. Let's think of some of the judgments that are made against Christians. And sometimes they're true. I'll just give you a list of several here. We could add to it. One, Christians are too judgmental. They are too legalistic. They are high and mighty. They are holier than thou. Or specifically, we hear this quite often now, Christians are homophobic, transphobic, heteronormative, colonialist, and more. The terms of insult just increase. Now, sometimes these judgments are correct, really. Sometimes they are not correct. So we have to judge, and we have to judge wisely. I think sometimes Christians will, excuse me, non-Christians will say these sorts of things against Christians uh, simply to mean shut up so we can sin in peace. But nevertheless, we have to make judgments. Sometimes we make wrong judgments intellectually. Sometimes we make judgments that are right intellectually, but in the wrong spirit. So we want to judge rightly, and we want to judge in terms of the fruit of the Spirit as people of the Beatitudes. In this passage, Jesus shows us how to judge with what I call his master principle for judgment. Judge yourself according to the right standard, then judge others according to the right standard in love. So let's talk about the logic of judgment. A judgment is a personal evaluation on a state of affairs, whether moral or non-moral. Excuse me, I'm a philosopher, so I talk like this. A judgment is a personal evaluation of a state of affairs. So a judgment is made by a person. You could be judging a work of art as beautiful or ugly or creative or old-fashioned, whatever it is. You could be judging a person's character. Is this person trustworthy? You could be judging just about anything. We have to make judgments all the time. What's the best place Best place to go out and eat. We make a judgment about that. What kind of tip should we leave? We make a judgment. Some of the judgments are rather everyday and may seem trivial, but we also have to judge what is true and false in the deepest possible way. Who is the one true God? Is there a God? What is the right way to live? Or is it all relative? Who are virtuous people? What are the virtues? They're very serious business. And also, according to the logic of judgment, a judgment is always made according to a standard, either implicit or explicit. You might know very clearly what your standard is. It may be a little more fuzzy. So think of some common everyday things. You go to the store and want to buy some wood, uh, if you're a millionaire, and (laughs) you have to judge how long the wood is because you're paying by the inch, right? That's very simple. You need a tape measure. How long is this piece of music? You judge it by the clock. How good is the student? Something I think about quite a bit. We judge by the evaluations that we give. 
on papers and other assignments. So for any judgment that we make, trivial or profound, it is necessary to ask, by what standard are we making the judgment? Standards are required for a serious judgment, unless we're simply giving whimsical, off-the-cuff kind of opinions. And it would come, when it comes to the most serious issues, is there a God? How does God want us to live? What is a virtuous way of life? We must judge properly. The right standard, and then also the right spirit. Both. Standard and spirit. No one can be completely non-judgmental unless you've taken a vow of silence. And then you could still frown or hiss at people. So we can't avoid judgments. The issue is how skilled are we in making the judgments given our standard and given the spirit within us. Now, when we look to the Lord, we find that he is making judgments all the time. So we know right away that when he says, don't judge lest you be judged, that he's got to refine the meaning of judgment because he was not some kind of mystical sage floating two feet above the ground, never exhorting or challenging or rebuking people. Jesus made many judgments, and actually, we should live by the judgments that he made. Some of his judgments were quite harsh. Let me give you one of the seven woes or condemning judgments he made against the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. We'll find that word in our passage. You hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I think that's the most searing insult I have ever read. Because you're so arduous and dedicated to make converts, and you think, yes, they're zealous for the Lord, they're reaching the lost, and then Jesus drops the boom on them, right? And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, that's our Lord, who is perfectly righteous and without sin. He was able to make that judgment without sinning. The statement was true, and the statement was made in the right spirit. Here's a gentle rebuke. This is from Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about how God takes care of the things in nature. He takes care of the birds and all the rest of it. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Gentle. God takes care of the animals. He takes care of nature. And you are more valuable than they are. So how much more will he take care of you, you of little faith? Right? So Jesus, being perfect, being sinless, being the living word of God, is able to make judgments flawlessly. And so my advice is that we be very careful to be as intense and severe as Jesus could be in judgment. There may be a time for it, 
But this passage that we're looking at really has to do with looking at our own life, our own being, in light of the judgments that we offer. Now, Jesus could look at his own life and find no fault whatsoever because he was obeying the Holy Spirit. He was living according to the Scripture. He was the Son of God. He was the Savior of the world. We are not in that position. We need to hear from the one who was in that position and follow his teaching. So verses 1 and 2, I'm using the New International Version, and I don't think there are any differences really from what was read. So verses 1 and 2, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think this verse is probably the favorite verse of non-Christians to use against Christians. So you Christians say there's one way to God through Jesus. You Christians say God has spoken about sexual ethics. God has laid down one man, one woman for life in Scripture. And your own Jesus, your own Savior says don't, don't judge. And you're judging all the time. So we've got to consider what this really means. Is it a blanket statement or an absolute prohibition? What does that word judge mean in the context? So we need to keep reading. We'll see how this fleshes out. And you might have heard this old adage, a text out of context is often a pretext for error. So we've got to look at the context. And then we need to ask also about the original wording. The Greek for judge here is krino, and it really means condemnation or being judgmental or censorious. Censorious means too quick to judge, too harsh of a judgment, hate involved in the judgment, exempting yourself from the standard by which you're judging. So Bill Mounts, who is a New Testament scholar, says this means to assume censorial power over, to call to account. So Jesus doesn't want us to judge in that way. And there's a warning. The judgment comes back on you. Basically like a boomerang. You throw a boomerang and think it's just going to hit somebody else, it will come back and hit you. I get this from John Stott in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when we judge, we think that we are on the bench as the judge, but we forget that we are also in the dock as the accused can't be John Stott if you haven't read lots of John Stott. What a wonderful preacher, teacher, Christian statesman he was. So we think we're on the bench as a judge, but we're also in the dock as the accused. And in fact, that should be the first order of business when we make a judgment, is to first judge or evaluate our own character and our own patterns of actions. What comes out of our mouth? how we spend our money, how we treat other people, how we pray. So let's go on to verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, we sometimes don't realize how funny Jesus could be. It's a little book by D. Elton Trueblood called The Humor of Jesus. If you read this to a little child, they'd probably visualize somebody with a plank in their eye trying to grope around and 
take a little speck out of someone else's eye. It's actually a humorous image in the midst of a very serious warning. And often when Jesus asks questions, the answer is implicit in the question. You might say to ask it is to answer it. So why do you take the speck of sawdust, take out the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus knows there's no good reason. So he's not asking for a defense of this. You're in the dock here. You're accused. And Jesus can judge justly in every situation. And we can't. So we need to hear him and walk by the Spirit. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? The same question basically asked in two different ways. So Jesus is asking, why do you look without? Why do you look outside and make these judgments, these evaluations on states of affairs, character, institutions, whatever they may be, and not look within? So it's a contrast. A log versus a speck. So the sin in your own life is much more important to deal with than the sin in someone else's life. Doesn't mean there isn't sin in other people's lives. It doesn't mean you should never make an evaluation morally. We must. The issue is whether we do it rightly and wisely, with the right standards and with the right spirit. So it's often said that when someone preaches a text, you have to let the text preach to you before you preach the text. Uh, I did this to some extent. I, I could have certainly reflected more on my own shortcomings. But I thought of an example. I have a tendency, I won't even give you any details, but uh, I know of a situation where people keep a really messy house, just inhospitably messy. And I think, how can they do that? That's just not right. It's really not a kind thing to have a messy house. And then I think, did you forget your own office? Did you forget your own basement? Uh, some of you may have, I don't know if anybody in this room has been in my basement. Mike, you might come over and come. But I, I create, I write, and I create messages out of near chaos. I don't know how I do it. My wife's not that happy about it. Uh, but she has jurisdiction of the main and the second floor and when she leaves for a few weeks, uh, it, it's not good. So she will say, Doug, are you keeping the house orderly or are you letting it go to rotten ruin and you will desperately try to fix it before I come back? And I try to give an honest answer. Now that may seem rather small, but we don't want to develop habits like that, even if they're small things. Because if we do this in the smaller things, we can do it in the larger things. We may point out someone's sin and not realize that we have sinned in the same way, or at least we could sin in the same way. So the command that Jesus is giving us, really questions that become a command, doesn't mean you never evaluate things. You never make a judgment. We need to hold each other accountable. We need to hear truth from our brothers and sisters, and sometimes we're in a situation where we have to say some difficult things to friends. But we need to pay attention to the log in our own eye. Now, how do you do that? Jesus doesn't say here, but that's fine because the rest of the Bible certainly does. 
One way to look at the log in your own eye is to regularly read the Bible in a reflective and concerned way. So James 1.25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he means scripture, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we're back to the Beatitudes. If you want to be blessed, walk in the Spirit and be a certain kind of person. Be a peacebreaker. Be meek. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Am I meek? Am I merciful? Am I pure of heart? Am I longing for righteousness? And so on. So we can pray for self-awareness. Some folks, and I'm sure me many times, are very self-unaware. They don't seem to know themselves very well. And that's why we need each other, to challenge each other, uh, to say, well, maybe you don't know this, but there's some, some area of your life you can improve on. And we should be able to humbly receive that from other people. Iron sharpens iron, as we often say. So why do we want to remove the speck in our own eye and not remove, uh, excuse me, the, the plank in our own eye and not remove the speck in someone else's eye? Well, excuse me, let me get this right. Why do you avoid your own sins and want to condemn everybody else? Why do you avoid the plank in your own eye and want to go after the speck? Well, because it justifies us, it gets us off the hook. We can kind of revel in judging others. In John Stott's commentary in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we tend to overestimate the sin of others and underestimate our own sin. It's part of being a fallen human being. And then we also need to be careful not to be what we could call a moral busybody. You don't have to make judgments on everything all the time. I need to tell myself that. I, I tend to be a crusty old curmudgeonly philosopher. And everything bothers me in one way or another. Uh, and my wife is still working with that. Uh, we've been married for three years. She'll sometimes say, Doug, what's wrong? And I say, my face always looks like this. So I need to hear this. And my wife is very cheerful and non-judgmental, and she can be a great example for me. Uh, she's not here this morning, not because she didn't want to hear the sermon, I think. Uh, but uh, one of our folks at Trinity Anglican is being ordained this morning, so she wanted to be there represent us there. So we need verse 5. How can we avoid hypocrisy and make a sound judgment, get this speck and plank thing worked out? So verse 5, more strong language, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now in this one verse, there are three different events going on. First of all, there's an accusation, then there's a command, and then there's a promise. So the accusation is, you hypocrite. Now that's strong language. The word hypocrite is never a compliment. You may have noticed that. So what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a play actor, an imposter, a phony, a charlatan. It's used four times in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's used many times by Jesus. Now, a hypocrite is not that you fail to live up to your standard or God's standard. We all fail to do that, except our Lord, who was sinless and morally perfect. 
And Jesus was merciful to sinners who knew they were sinners. That was part of the scandal of his ministry. He associated with tax collectors and sinners. The gospel tells us that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And we continue to struggle with our disobedience to the Lord even as we grow in Christ. So that's not what hypocrite means. Hypocrite is when you pretend that you live up to your standard when you do not. It's not failing to live up to the standard. It's pretending that you are living up to it when in fact you are not. So you are play acting. You're really an imposter, a fraud, a fake, a phony. So there's the condemnation. If this is how you live, you're judging things right and left. And get this, the judgments may be true, or they may not be true. But if you're living that way and you're not looking inward to your own conscience, then you are a hypocrite. And the Lord of the universe has just called you a hypocrite. Something needs to change. So a command from Jesus. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Obviously, a plank is larger than a speck. It's a humorous image. The plank obscures your ability to see and becomes a problem. So even if you're not looking at your own sin, your own plank, you may make proper judgments. But the force of the passage seems to be you probably won't because your own sin is obscuring the truth of what you see outside of you. See, there's an intellectual element to this. Take the plank out. Look at your own conscience, repent, come to the Lord, have the proper standard, be filled with the Spirit. Then you can see properly, you can see whether this is right or wrong, good or evil, right? And you can do so not only by making the proper intellectual judgment on states of affairs, but with the right spirit, the right spirit. So there's a promise, there's an accusation, there's a command, and there's a promise that we can have a sober and clear judgment if we do this. So let's go back. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. So you hypocrite, the accusation, the command. First take the plank out of your own eye, then the promise. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus says your brother's eye, not your enemy's eye not your, uh, the person that you can't stand and you want to just judge and get on with it. And it's funny, I never really saw this for all these years. It's not just judge properly and don't be haughty about it, judge yourself, but you see there's an eye here to reconciliation and restoration. Then you will be able to see the speck in your brother's eye. Uh, I noticed recently that I have a phrase that I use quite a bit that I need to probably repent of. And it's the phrase, these people and you people, meaning the people that are beneath my contempt. These people do that or you people do that. And somebody called me out on that recently and I, I started to reflect on how I use those phrases. And now when I say it, I think about it and probably... I shouldn't say it at all. So search your own hearts. Think about what you say, what's in your heart. So there is a moral and actually a philosophical point here. 
that we need to apply the same standard, the right standard, actually the standard of Scripture, to ourselves and then apply it to our neighbor in that order. And that is a condition in order to judge wisely and in order to judge by the right spirit such that this could bring reconciliation. This could renew or restore friendship or help heal a church or minister in an organization. So if you judge properly, you can help the, the person remove the speck from his or her own eye. This is your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. And sometimes we have to try to make peace through truth and the Spirit with people who are really our enemies. So this is the master principle of judgment from this passage. Judge yourself according to the right standard, then judge others according to the right standard in love. We need a proper standard that is Scripture, which is God's living and active word. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for correction, for rebuke, and so on. And then also, we don't only need to make the right evaluation on states of affairs, to put it technically, but we need to make this in the right spirit. The person that we are considering or the issue we're considering should be thought about in love, in love. Speak the truth in love. We should have a godly and loving approach to the judgment, not to be censorious or to condemn. So let's go back to Matthew 5 and think about who we are as salt and light, who we are before the witness or before the watching world. What kind of witnesses are we? You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So we do represent Christ and the gospel and the Bible to the world. And judgment is inescapable. But we have to avoid being judgmental, being censorious, being mean-spirited, making judgments that are not in accord with Scripture. And Jesus gives us the master principle to do this. And we learn this over a lifetime. As I've been preparing and reflecting on this, um, I've thought of several things, and I mentioned several of them to you. Judging people for being messy when I'm very messy, or, or more seriously, when I can sometimes just condemn a whole group of people by using this phrase, you people, or those people. So I've got a long way to go, and I'm so thankful uh, for the Word of God to teach us. Judge yourself according to the right standard, then judge others according to the right standard in the right time in love. Lord, we pray you would apply this scripture to our lives, that you would minister to us, and we would think and feel and speak and act wisely. We pray it in Christ's name.